This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. I recently had the great occasion to speak with my good friend, the author Julia Alvarez. Her new book, Afterlife, is one of the most anticipated books of the year and one that I loved immensely. And it's her first adult novel in 14 years. Afterlife is a book about love and loss. It's also a beautiful, beautiful novel for these very difficult times that we find ourselves in now. What follows is the live virtual event that we had with Julia at Books and Books. You're in Vermont. You're in Vermont, right. And, you know, it's a big deal in Vermont when spring comes. And we found um, some... uh, trout lilies in the woods and we forage and have a big huge basket of fiddlehead ferns and uh on the road um there's a there's a a big purple heart somebody painted and a sign that says thank you truckers and we get calls and messages people can we pick up something for you so i just feel like it has been um an incredible um tragic time as we hear the news and hear of friends that succumb. Uh, and at the same time, there are these, you, you really cherish these things that we're normally too busy uh, to see and know and community builds. So in that way, Mitch, it's, it's, it's been a good thing. And, you know, sad for the book that it's coming out at, at you know, born under a, a dark star, but given the things that are going on out there, it's a very small disappointment. The book stays with somebody in a way that not a lot of narratives do. But one, and, and when you talk about it being a dark time, what's so interesting, and we can talk a little bit about it, is that afterlife could be about this time as well, in so many ways. I know you didn't plan for this, none of us did, but in, in thematically, it fits right into what we're doing. And one of the things I wanted to start out by asking you is that after so many years, you've written poetry, you've written books for adults, you've written books for kids, you've written so many different things. Why afterlife and why now? What is the, the how did that, how did it come to be? Um, what, one of the things, I'm gonna turn the speaker off because it, it blares my voice. But um, one of the things that, that I can say about, you know, hearing from my publisher when, when I got the description, her first novel in 15 years, and I thought, wow, but I've been writing. I think that part of it was that it was um, that, I, that I had to integrate things uh, and write from this point in my life. I, I call this my first novel as an elder. And I think that I, um, you know, in my own life, I was wondering what does it mean to be an elder storyteller? What does it mean to be at this stage of life? What, do, what are the stories I have to tell before I go? 
And these aren't things that are instantly apparent. And I didn't just want to repeat the things that I had learned and the things that I knew I could do um, or thought I knew I could do. I wanted it to be, um, I, I wanted to be accurate. That's really one of the things I was after. I wanted it to be accurate um, to something that I had to build the root system for in my own life and in my own psyche. So there is that, that it takes a while, at least for this kind of a writer, where the life and the work, the, li the work is the practice, the calling, and therefore they're, they're deeply, deeply connected. And I couldn't write the book that I didn't yet know how to write. And I don't mean just with my, with my smarts up here or my brain. Um, so there was that. And I think in terms of how it sort of eerily resonates with this time, I think that writers, um, part of what we do, Henry James said that, you know, the, the, that the advice to a young writer was be him or her, I'm adding her, be him or her on whom nothing is lost. We're picking things up all the time in the zeitgeist. We're, we're picking things up. We're, we're um, learning. And I think there was, we're living in a time of, of loss. I call it elegiac time. You know, a time where so many things are, we're losing so many things, species, climate change, uh, the lack of a civil society, gun violence, divisiveness, draconian immigrant. We were watching the, the breakdown of things. And I think as a writer, you're absorbing that. And it's not that you write directly to what you're absorbing. It can be a story over here, but that kind of, uh, you know, like a gas under the door, it comes in and it's part of what composes you as you as you compose. So I think that was that was part of what was going on. And without giving away much, could you give a broad narrative outline of the book itself? But the way it goes is she retired to the good life and found herself in a wasteland. She went out to dinner with her husband and came home a widow. She closed herself up in the past and found the future in her garage. She fled her familia and rediscovered her sisters. She failed to save others and touched bottom in her heart, which allowed her to help others. This is the best afterlife any of us can have before we die. And then I say for the novel version of the story, read afterlife. It takes us from the beginning of this death, of this, this clearly loving marriage where the husband dies and it takes you all the way through the various stages of grief that 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 um that the main character has and in in between you don't only deal with elliot but you deal with rumi you deal with 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 auden you deal with haiku you have this marvelous marvelous haiku even Kyoto, hearing the cuckoos cry, I long for Kyoto. That was something that I had not really known before. And it was just so, so beautiful. Wordsworth, uh, Tolstoy, Rilke on death, the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it's all in there in this very slim volume. How were you able to distill your years worth of reading and teaching and select those particular elements? What did you use to make those selections in order to describe what grief could be? 
I don't think that, um, you know, I, I don't think it was a strategy. I think it was just, um, you know, of course, Antonia, um, you know, inherits all the DNA <laughs> of, of, um, of her author, um, her literary DNA. And so these, these phrases, these, um, these iconic, uh, as I call them, string uh, through the labyrinth, which Antonia has been using all her life. And they're kind of like um, the ways that she understands and makes meaning, her, her, com her compassion, uh, her engine for empathy, her, it's just how she runs, you know, this is her gasoline. But one of the things that I wanted to strip away from her, um, because that's true dark night of the soul, is that sometimes that's not gonna be enough. As much as she has used these things and tries desperately to find her way with their guidance, she, that is not, it fails her. Sometimes life is gonna demand more from her than words. And this is a chastening for her. You know, um, this is, I mean, this is the last thing, you know, I wanted to sort of write a contemporary book of Job with a Latina main character and with a sense of humor. And, <laughs> both. And you did both. And you did both. You did a, so you have to straight, you know, Job, everything gets stripped away from Job. He right. doesn't get to keep anything. You That's know? true. Uh, and so what happens at that moment, uh, you know, where you're a bare forked animal on, on you know, on, the, uh, on that heath in King Lear, you know, what happens when all of that falls away. What, where do you touch bottom? You know, and this is in fact, you know, why I think ultimately it's a hopeful book um, because spoiler alert, she does touch bottom, not where she expected, not, um, you know, not an easy plunge, but she does touch. Yes, we all walk around with that tape running in our head, right? That tape that nobody else can hear. What this book did, and I guess I personalized it or I projected it onto you as the author, but it gave me an insight into what that what the sound of that tape was like in someone like like an English teacher in Vermont at Middlebury College, even though it's not Middlebury College, right? But but it gave me that insight into someone who is completely immersed in the word, who every reference that they have comes from literature of one sort or another. And that was the guiding light for this character, th those words. And when you say she came out at the end, would you talk a little bit about what she found at the end? And, and with this character, I especially wanted, um, I didn't want to be, I didn't want a character that, um, was serving me. I wanted, I wanted a character that was smarter than me. I wanted a character, and I wanted to be totally accurate to the nuances and complexities, you know? And so one of the things is that there are no answers, you know? Um, that is, it is about being present and having the questions. Um, and then as you pointed out, you know, in that, in that openness, which is painful because you want you want a set of answers you know you want a little you want to have a a rule of life you know but but no you know to live in that uncertainty and to be present in that moment and to yeah 
to think with your heart, to, to let that guide you. Um, and, and that means, that doesn't mean just, oh, you make the really big hearted decision. Some people would want Antonia to do something else than what she does with um, undocumented workers she's asked to help. But, but you know, she it, it's a balance of being true. Because see, I think the way we really serve in, in our lives is if we serve with what we love. If we serve dutifully or out of some ideology, we're, we're abstracted. And I wanted it to be that we serve, I, I wanted for her um, to serve with what you're passionate about. That is the greatest activism, when you're able to do that, to serve with what you love, which might be writing, which might be having a garden. It doesn't mean that you're at the front lines, although I think more and more we're having to find out that all of us have to become that kind of activist too. But it's about serving with, with your passion because that's what you were put here to do. And if you bring that to the table, you're bringing love to the table. And how can that hurt? That's how the beloved community gets created. And in this, this time of loss, and so many of us have lost so many, uh, even maybe even really bef even before this virus hit, you write about an afterlife. And you say this, what if anything does it mean in afterlife? All she has come up with is that the only way not to let the people she loves die forever is to embody what she loved about them. What a beautiful way of thinking. Going round and round about the title, which I, this was my title and I, I held on to it like a dog with a bone. But one of the things that I wanted um, I, you know, we people, uh, publisher, of course, worries that maybe people would think it's, you know, um, a religious tract or something. But to me, that is what the, the afterlife means. That the afterlife she could create for Sam is to embody those things she loved in him. And then not all of him dies. And so that's part of, you know, what I mean by an afterlife, as well as, as well as um, the fact that as we see with this character throughout the novel, even within any of our lives, there are many little deaths. If we're lucky, if we're resilient, um, we come back. We have a life after, we have an afterlife after those little deaths. And hopefully um, there'll be even bigger versions of our former lives uh, if we stay open and, um, and lead with a heart. So yeah, it's, um, afterlife is very much um, about about embodying those things that you learn about the characters that she's lost and is losing. Again, you pointed out in a way that was so elegant, and that is the the fear that we all walk around with all the time, and 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 which it's the fear which guides us. And you you actually start. I think it's your first chapter the first name chapter, which is Here There Be Dragons. So this basic so fear this is what we're all dealing with. All and dealing the way with. we and construct our lives is in essence trying to make sense out of that, what that fear really is, which is our, really our mortality. And as all those of us get to be of a certain age, that does become, you know, it over, you know when I think about where I'll be in 15 years and how old that'll make me, it's very frightening to a large extent. So we have to deal with all of those things. 
And I'm sure that that's something that you, and I know that's something you confronted here. So what I want to do is just throw out a couple of, couple of highlights of this novel for me and let you just, the first thing that comes to mind, you refer a lot to the book of the anonymous. You want to talk a little bit about what that means to you, to you the book of the, the, anonymous. Book of the anonymous? Oh, the, uh, this, this book that, that if she ever gets back to her writing and Tony's going to write about, actually, Mitch, about what we're hearing about all the time now. Thank you, truckers, essential workers, all of a sudden your garbage man. Where would we be without him? The delivery person, the person stocking, stocking in a grocery store. And this is something that intrigues Antonia. All the, all the uh, sort of invisible, anonymous people that really are behind the big, important things that happen and, you know, the front people that are supposedly responsible. And uh, the book of the anonymous is also, of course, you know, so much um, a legacy of, of women and uh, female writers. So many of them were anonymous. You know, they, 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 weren't, they didn't have voices. Uh, they, they were storytellers, they were weavers, they were quilters, they were chefs, they were mothers. You know, they did all the work of civilization. So Antonia, is very taken with um, you know these people to get the work done, including all the undocumented migrant workers that are doing all the milking in all the dairy farms around her. And uh, uh, you, you know, the the beautiful dairy uh, idyllic image of Vermont is carried on their backs, but nobody sees them. <laughs> you know, uh, it reminded so, me. It reminded me a little of when you read about what Williams was trying to do in some of his early poetry. You know, so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chicken. So much depends on the average, everyday kind of common thing. And it has the same thing to do with, with people. History is made up of that. It's not made up of just big, huge events that go on. Um, talk also about, and this, this you write about all the time, but in this book particularly, it's quite prevalent. But talk about the sisterhood. Well, uh, I, no, no surprise if you look back over, and now I have you know a long history behind me of of of, um, of uh, footprints in what I've written. I've written. I've always been interested in sisters, starting with the Garcia girls, then the Mirabal sisters, and also with the bond between women. Because even saving the world, even though it's not about blood sisters, it's about two soulmates over. Um, two different periods of history, but um, one of them finds the other. And one of them in, in the past, a historical figure imagines the other. So um, sisterhoods have always been important to me. I come from a family of all sisters. So for me, my, and, and you know, I come from a culture too, a Latino culture, a, a familia culture, where it's never just about me, but about we. And you know, um, when you grow up in this in this um, coven of sisters, it's almost like you're not a whole person unless all of you are together. But not not to make that uh, you know this really oh wonderful what a bond. It also means uh, trouble because there's there's the need for I who are you in this um, sisterhood? And it's so easy also 
because one of the things that the book is concerned with is the gated communities we put ourselves in. Whether, like you say, it's, you know, the dragons are all out there and you defend yourself by having a gated community of your tastes, your reading life, your friends, your whatever, the sisterhood. And, you know, part of it is I wanted to show, you know, I wanted to get out of those gated communities um, that we build, those um, those those deals we make with each other that don't allow us to, you know, be present in a relationship. We, we sort of close it down. So that's part of what I was, um, I mean, the sisters are very important. One sister says this to Antonia. She says, basically, uh, she's putting her down and saying, yeah, you're a blabbermouth, a blabbermouth author spilling everyone's beans in the family and calling it fiction. So it begs the question, how much of all of this is autobiographical? I know you didn't lose your husband, thankfully, but where is some of this? <laughs> Sad. You killed me in the first chapter, and I said, it's fixed. <laughs> he says it, he says it jokingly. But let, let me say this, Mitchell, because I think it's 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 tricky, and I understand, I understand a family's point of view. It's no fun having a writer in the family, especially one that as I've described myself, I you know, I'm a I'm a writer that very much the life and the work are so interconnected. I don't even know where that shoreline, it's a shifting shoreline. Um, but I think, you know, I was once on a panel with Julia Glass and, you know, she was on the panel. We each got our little roles in the panel. I supposedly wrote autobiographical fiction and she wrote fiction, fiction, you know, really invented fiction. And she said, hey guys, let me tell you this, all fiction, even fiction, fiction, is emotionally autobiographical. Right. The reason you go to that subject, the reason you have that character, the reason you have that situation is because there's some, there's juice in it for you, you know? Um, so that I think that all novels operate with that, with those kinds of um, connections between the author and her characters. That said, and I, I really have to emphasize this, is that even though my um, my fiction might come has a you know a biological parents in my life, I'm not interested in 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 being in in telling a memoir in telling all. I I am not interested really in Julia Alvarez, but she is the only apparatus I have for learning about the world and gathering the information and being present in the world. And I use it to create a narrative and what I don't need, even if it really happened, I throw out and what works I keep in. So I, sure, I, you know, some, as Julia Glass said, all fiction is emotionally autobiographical and the membrane between the life and the work seems to be thinner for me. Who knows why? Maybe because I come from an oral tradition. Maybe because I come from a tradition where um, the storyteller is part of a community. So the idea that I would have a story to tell that has nothing to do with the community, <laughs> somehow I can't explain it, you know? Um, it, it doesn't, 
I, I've written stories like that, and they don't live. Yeah, no, well, this, guess, this will live. Get in there. This, will, but, um, this will live for a know. long, long time. And, you know, the other thing which I found really heartening is there was one line that you have in it where it says, Antonia reads prose as if it is poetry. And, you know, it's sort of the way I, I read. I'm a very slow reader, and it's really about reading Talk then. Talk a little bit about your connection to the written word that way. I mean, I read it for the beauty of language and what it says, and how I can how I can get deeper than just the word on the page. I I think I think I'm partly dyslexic, so I me too. I have probably to read too. very very <laughs> slow, you know, slowly, and I think because I was trained in poetry. I, I pay attention to every word. Um, this is why it's so hard for me to blurb books because I actually read the whole thing and I read it very slowly. So it's it's difficult, but I think it's also, um, I have trouble with reading. I can't read on a device because um, a device puts me in hyper time instead of um, deep reading, you know, uh, instead of um, contemplative time. And so I, I read, I enter that world when I'm reading, so I don't know how to do it. I don't. I never knew how to speed read, and so this is the way that I write too, and why I'm constantly revising because it's as if I'm writing a poem, and a word doesn't sound right, uh, or the syntax of a sentence, or the flow of a paragraph, or the rhythm of a chapter, and I'm. You know, I'm paying attention to those things. And so, you know, sometimes I wish I could just get the, bang the story down. But, but I can't do that, you know. It's part of my handicap. Maybe having started as a poet or, or maybe it's just my sensibility, you know. It's, it's the way that I, um, that I put together reality. Well, one of, one of Antonia's poems even makes it into the book. And I, I, at least two lines of it, which I really... I really love. It's called, We ma it goes, we make the spirit out of what we own. No angel lives abroad, but in the bone. It reminds me so much of people like uh, Miller Williams, you know, where the spirit meets the bone, you know, that sort of thing. And that was such a beautiful two lines. But I also then want to get to this idea because a good part of the book does deal with what, what's happening in the news. I mean, you can't say anything more than that. Not today, but at the time you were writing, you were writing it. I mean, the whole idea of undocumented uh, folks and the, you know, you, you do something so unique and so beautiful that you take away all stereotypes in the way you handle this. The fact that it is in Vermont, not a lot of people think about it that way. It, it opens a lot of people's eyes. Um, um, talk about that. And then I'm also interested if you talk a little bit about, because you live amongst them, what Sheriff Boyer meant. The whole idea of Sheriff Boyer, these, these guys who are kind of clueless, but yet they support, you know, they are right wingers, but yet, you know, their heart seems to be in the right place. That's we talked about this a little earlier with gated communities. Part of the thing um, that 
Antonia, um, you know, I bring into her life is um, the way that we, uh, I just, I think she, the phrase she uses is, uh, you know, uh, her, uh, thrust someone down our othering chute, you know, oh, he's a, you know, he, he's a right winger, uh, white sheriff, he's, you know, and she, she's, you know, very alert and wary, but it turns out that she, one of the things that I think Antonia learns is to grant others the same complexity and nuance are, as herself, that there are no others, you know, that there is this person and that person. So yeah, the sheriff boyers, um, the, um, the farmer next door, you know, uh, whom she already has in this, in this little, you know, in this little, uh, label and, uh, you know, and, and to, Sort of, that's what I meant before about meeting the reality uh, with an open heart, you know, and suddenly discovering, hey, but I also wanted it in another way. I wanted to tweak this idea that she's Latina, you know, and therefore everybody assumes she's married to this white guy and they think, and who's kind of very political and vocal about it. And everybody assumes, oh, she's changed him. She's, you know, right. it's because right. of this. And she's actually the reluctant activist. Right. She's the one holding back. So I wanted that too, you know, that there isn't one kind, even if um, you're in a certain demographic, there isn't a one kind of that kind either. And part of the true diversity is to grant other people full diversity. Um, it's not just, you know, ethnic diversity. You're in that demographic and therefore you're this homogeneous kind of person, you know, full diversity. And for her to grant that to herself, you know, that she has to accept that complexity in herself too. Yeah. She had to find her immigrant toolkit somewhere way down below. She had to be there. She had to find it somehow, which she, which she does. And I just want to, I'll, I'll end my questions with you with just a, a, a statement from the book, which, which I really, which kind of blew me away, where, where, and I'm forgetting where it comes from, actually. It might be from somebody else, but it may be from one of the poets you talk about, or it might be right from you, but you, you say, pessimism would be an ethical catastrophe. We have to live as if, in other words, by metaphor. And I, I'm forgetting where that comes from, but, but I came from you. It's just beautiful. <laughs> Sometimes I, I think I've invented a character, and somebody comes up and says, "Hey, well, you named." I said that to you at a dinner party. But you named the whole chapter. Ooh, you named the whole chapter, chapter as, if. as if. So you were as actually if. thinking of metaphor. To live by metaphor, yeah. And I think so much of hope, um, and so much of living in our time is that it, it's a luxury. It's an entitlement to despair. We we can't do that. We, we can't do that to the generations coming after us. We have to live as if it will matter that we show up, you know, that we protest, that we sign a petition. We have to, we have to live as if, even if this wonderful line from Wendell Berry that did not find its way into the book, amazingly, is from a poem of his called... Um, Manifesto, the Mad Farmer's Liberation Front. And there's a wonderful line in it, and it's, um, be joyful, 
although you have considered all the facts. Oh, that's Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. You know, and the last line of that poem is, practice resurrection. Uh, practice resurrection. I could have put that at the end of this um and it's it's yeah. these days it's yeah. not these days it's not very easy not to do easy. either of those as if Mitch as if I just have to encourage everybody to read this book it to me it's the book of the year I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Julia Alvarez as much as I did as you just heard Julia is a remarkable storyteller and you can order her book afterlife at booksandbooks.com bookshop.org or from your favorite independent bookseller.